And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. race is on and Max Verstappen won a thrilling Saudi Arabian Grand Prix after passing Charles Leclerc in the closing stages of the race. But was Sergio Perez robbed of victory and should the race have taken place at all given safety concerns? I'm Ed Straw and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well Scott, we're here in Jeddah. Like the circuit, our hotel's only a few miles from the depot that everyone heard so much about that was hit by missile on Friday. Certainly been an unusual weekend, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been um, it's been odd. It's been uneasy and uh, tense at times. Uh, we've stayed in a slightly different part of Jeddah this year to last year's race and seen a little bit of a different side of it and uh, I think a better side of it. I think it'd give us a slightly better in- impression of, uh, of what the place is about. Um but that positive element has been drowned out by the rest of the problems. You know, we, we came to this race last year. We're here again. I'm probably going to come back if F1 sticks with it. But I can't remember having the same feeling as I've had this week um, at, at any race I've ever done. Um, there's all already an awkward feeling around this race because you you come here or in the build-up, you, you know that there is that permanent human human rights issue. Then we had the news of the largest mass execution in the country's recent history. Then there's the reports of Yemen rebel attacks on nearby facilities. And then once we get here, there's actually a successful attack close to the circuit. So there's all this happening off track. And on track, we know that we're always potentially a few seconds away from a massive shunt, which is exactly what we had in qualifying. So I'm glad nothing more serious happened over the rest of the weekend. Because the week felt like it was building towards a worrying crescendo. And we've avoided that. And honestly, like a few of the drivers have said after the race, I'm 
I'm just happy it's over and that we're going to be heading home soon. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. And Mark, that situation on the Friday did make this one of the weekends where F1 had to confront some harsh realities rather than just obliviously floating along in its own bubble. Not the first time this has happened, but when you've got smoke billowing in the distance while free practice is going on, it makes a pretty big impact, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's it's put the uh, it's put the spotlight on Formula One again. Um, it it, it, uh, it puts it in a very awkward position. It, um, we've we've been here before um, a little bit with um, Bahrain during the the Arab Spring. Um, there's we've sort of revisited a little bit in terms of um, the R- Russia with the invasion of Ukraine and. Yeah, the inside world is uh, the the outside world rather is a, a very troubled place at the moment, and it's um, it's imposing itself on everything, including Formula One. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, unavoidable and became a big story this weekend as a result. So. As always, we have questions from members of the Race Members Club on this podcast. We're not going to spend too long on this topic, simply because we do have a race to get to, but we will talk about this subject again in the future because it's very complex and it's an important one and we probably need to do a whole podcast on it, maybe uh, a couple of podcasts on it to get into the detail of it. But we do have a question about this whole situation from Sean Rooney, who asks, how has F1 found itself in this situation again? The scenes I saw at the weekend reminded me of the last very visible time F1 morally compromised itself with the scenes surrounding the Bahrain Grand Prix during the Arab Spring. Is it a case that the race fees paid by places with dubious human rights records and security situations will continue to speak loudest? F1 has always had a complex moral compass, so how can fans reckon with the fact that a significant number of races on the calendar are now taking place in places judged by the Democracy Index to be authoritarian regimes and a list that's likely to grow? Well, Mark, to circle back to the start of the question, how did F1 find itself in this situation? Well, money as ever. It, it goes back many years to when, probably to when the sport failed to control its costs and then voraciously set off to find ways of funding that insane appetite of spend. Uh, then as the West, the, like the Western economy imploded, didn't it, in 2008 with the banking crisis? And so the imperative was even more to source the money from wherever it could be found. And just as that nettle was being grasped with the cost-controlled nettle, along came COVID, and that's placed the sport under a quite significant amount of financial jeopardy. I can't recall the exact number of losses incurred in 2020, but they were enormous, and they had to be recovered and quickly. Now, Saudi Arabia's deal, which had long been mooted, got the green light during that time. Now, there are other factors at play here as well, but the, the root cause, if you trace it back, is the, the sport's financial model. And you then get into the question of, whether sport can ever be non-political. And for Zamgansen, a global sport can't be non-political. It carries its own weight of political power just through its sheer mass and the size of its following and its popularity. It, it'll be used politically whether it likes it or not. So not going would be political. Going is political. So what we are saying is, should there be a moral compass? Okay, but who sets that? Well, personally, I'd like to see something like a, a UN human rights index, a number, and above it, you know, Formula One could have its own charter saying above that number, no problem, we, we'll go if we can do a deal. Below it, we can't. And then it becomes apolitical, It's not, the, or at least it's not the sport's choice because the F1 can just say, 
um, to the source waving the money, sorry, no, your number's not high enough, or your, your index number's not high enough. we'd love to come when that's sorted. But that's, that's probably naive, but um, yeah, you, that's the gist of the... Um, the the problem is is, uh, is money and it's the sport's previous spend. Yeah, and certainly the idea that sport can't be political when it's a race that's put on by the regime to promote the regime to the outside world. Ultimately, you can't make that argument. That's just a convenience and comforting argument you can make to not take on these issues. But yeah, it, it is a, a very problematic situation. But this one, Scott, is very difficult because if we set aside the questions of human rights and sports washing, not dismissing them, but this specific case that we had here was a security question. It's about this ongoing conflict between Saudi Arabia and the Houthi rebels in Yemen. The bombings, the missile attacks, the drone attacks have been going on and escalated. So this is a very odd situation, the specific thing that arose this weekend. I think it also brought the reality of what racing in Saudi Arabia will mean for Formula One. This is what I was saying. The the the, the human rights issue, the, the 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 wider issue on how certain people are treated here, some of the methods that are used here, the uh, prejudices that exist here. That's a that that is a permanent issue or or, or it's gonna be such a long term issue in terms of the efforts that are going on in this country to to improve that side of things, it's long-term enough that it, it might as well be permanent. That's not going to change. F1 knew that. The people that agreed to come here, including us to a degree, because we, we come to the event, we give the event coverage, knew that and accepted it to a certain degree. But what I don't think, or rather what I think nobody really thought is all the other stuff going on in the background, the the conflict, the the fact that despite the constant insistence over the last couple of days that this was a terrorist attack, as if it was some sort of isolated incident, that 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 uh, was frustrating for 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 many reasons. But because people, I just I just truly think people didn't including myself, didn't grasp the reality of that conflict and the fact that Jeddah and the circuit could be unwittingly part of what is a war zone, regardless of how many times Stefano Domenicali wants to call it a terrorist a terrorist attack. It's an ongoing conflict. It's in its eighth year. And I just think this happening so close to the circuit was a massive wake-up call for a lot of people in Formula 1, again, myself included, that... This stuff that you can brush aside almost and be aware that it's a background issue, but be happy that it's just in the background was very much in the foreground this weekend. So you're right, it's unique set of circumstances and even within the broader even within the broader sense of the problems of racing in Saudi, this was this was very specific. And uh, very worrying. Yeah, and there's, I don't think, any other race on the calendar where you could hold a race that's in a a de facto war zone that is being attacked and it'd be okay. The argument about safety, I think, is almost secondary. 
we were here wasn't especially concerned about that because it was fairly clear the circuit, the race wouldn't be a target. There was certainly no indication that that it was being threatened or targeted or, or whatever. But there's always the chance when you've got missiles and drones and things attacking things, something can happen. But just the basic principle of holding an F1 race where you need a good air defense system to cover it, that is the 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 core question on this specific instance and then it connects into all the other questions about this race when they come to review it oh i think all i'd add is that in my opinion um i i i always felt it was wrong that f1 had uh done the deal for this race in the first place i don't think f1 should have come here in the first place um with the with the the, the collection of issues just that 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 created just a such a dangerous and problematic combination it was a it was an order of magnitude more problematic than several other races on the calendar that that do have a lot of problems attached to them i would never pretend that saudi arabia is stands or saudi arabia stands alone as the only dubious regime um or situation that f1 embraces if the if the price is right um but I don't think we should have been here in the first place, and I don't think we should have stayed after what happened this week. I, I, I agree with you. I never felt particularly uh, at risk, but it wasn't really the it wasn't really the point. Um, I, I, I just don't I just don't think F one should be racing somewhere that is effectively in in a war zone. And what I was really really sick and tired of hearing by the end of the weekend is all of the justifications that were being like the fact that this is oh, this is just something that happens here. That That's not a justification for the race going ahead. That's a justification for the race never happening in the first place. Like, as you say, Ed, try, try and sell this race anywhere else in the world or somewhere in the world that isn't offering the sort of money that Saudi Arabia is offering to have its race on the calendar and be like, yeah, okay, can we have a Grand Prix here? There's no way you're getting a yes to that. So, yeah, it's just at its core, this is, um, this is, not, the, this is not the time to be racing here. I completely agree that there is an argument the race in, in places like this, broaden horizons, engaging new cultures do play a part in trying to bridge gaps between different cultures and societies and, and, and whatnot. But with, with everything that's going on at the moment, I like Mark's idea of setting a, setting a level that a country has to aspire to. If F1 is really seriously bothered about helping or encouraging Saudi Arabia to get its act together as a country, make it raise its game before you come here. F1 didn't do that. What we've seen this weekend is a consequence of that. Yeah, especially when you made a virtue of re-races one over the previous couple of years and all that kind of thing. It just doesn't all fit together. And I think F1 needs to do some very serious thinking. They are going to consider what the future of this race is. It's got a 15-year deal. But yeah, I, I think this weekend has shifted the dial in terms of the approach they'll take so let's see what happens in the future we are going to move on to the race now we will revisit this topic on a future episode when we have more time complicated troubling issue and one that f1 is going to have to get on top of and of course there will be some more on the race website on this topic in the coming days in addition to the various bits and pieces we have already written well mark let's get on to the race we can probably divide it into two elements in terms of the battle at the front starting with the one that began with Sergio Perez leading before a very unfortunately timed safety car caused by Nicolas Satifi crashing intervened. Perez, of course, made his pit stop at the end of lap 15. 
and then Latifi had, had his off. So where did Perez's pace come from to take that long-awaited pole position? And would he have won without that safety car? Um, his speed, probably divided into three things. Firstly, this generation of Red Bulls, not an oversteery handful requiring Max Verstappen-like skills to make it go fast. So it's got a fairly benign understeer balance, and he's quite at home with that. That's how he prefers his cars anyway. Secondly, he's always been very good between concrete walls. Um, recall he qualified a Force India second fastest at Baku one year, and of course he won there last year for Red Bull. And thirdly, Verstappen didn't get his tyre prep right, so the bar didn't get set quite as high as it otherwise would have done. It was still a great, very committed lap from Checo, though, especially through turn 22. And he was fantastic how he balanced the tyre usage, which is another one of his core skills. He didn't take too much from them in the first sector. And so he still had good temperatures um, in the second half of the lap at a point where Max's rears were getting too hot. So that's where the speed came from. Would he have won? I, I don't know. It, it was in a balance. There was a very big challenge from Leclerc coming. Um, Perez, he'd not managed to pull out an undercut's worth of gap over the Ferrari, and he was beginning to get some tyre dig. So Perez would have needed to have pitted a lap later, um, Leclerc would have needed to have pitted a lap later because otherwise Verstappen would have had a gap to drop into and could have undercut him. So let's assume there'd be no safety car and Leclerc had come in on the next lap. Um, depending on how much rubber Leclerc still had left on the in-lap and how quickly Perez could have got his new hards up to temperature on the out-lap, Maybe. It was all hanging in the balance until the Latifi crash. Um, I'd, I'd say maybe. Not definitely. Definitely maybe. <laughs> That'd make a good album title. But it was certainly unfortunate for Perez because it ended up with him finishing fourth because he had that very marginal call with Carlos Sainz at the safety car line. Thought he was ahead. He wasn't. He had to give that position back. So certainly we can agree it was very uh, unlucky that he ended up down there. But you have to say, Scott, this has been a good start to the season for Perez, hasn't he? He did a decent job in Bahrain, didn't get the result through no fault of his own. Pole position here, potential winner, would have been on the podium <laughs> at the very least. So so he's rattling along quite nicely this year. Yeah, he's. Um, I feel like this was his uh, all-round all most complete uh, weekend as a, as a Red Bull driver. Um, he, was, he was a bit scruffy in the second half of the race. Um, I messaged you, didn't I, when... Uh, when he'd, he'd missed out because of that, that safety car timing and just said, I have a nasty feeling this ends with Perez just sort of sliding and finishing about fifth. I, I was slightly wrong, obviously it was, uh, but it, but it was off the podium and it was just, uh, it was just not the result that, that obviously it, like he was heading for or probably deserved. And I think once the race went away from him and he had the, the weirdness with signs in the second part of the race in, in messing around with the um, race, the safety car line, um, and then having to give up the position, it just felt like once he'd sort of fallen down to that point, he didn't quite have as much pace as he had before. He he drove a little scruffier, so it was a shame. Um, but he 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 felt that he'd done everything through the weekend perfectly. Um, I don't know exactly what they'd done. I, I assume it was just a, a little flap adjustment. But he said that they made a change for for switching to the hard, and that hurt the car balance. Um, and he was catching at the end, but uh, he felt he'd lost time during the, the, the late yellow flags. So 
Yeah, as in in his words, called it a bit painful, and I can completely see why. Um, if he'd been able to convert a first career pole position into another win, it would have been a, a huge result for him at this stage of the season. Because how many times is he really going to out qualify Verstappen? Maybe only a maybe only a handful, if if, if that. So it's a, it's a big chance that's gone begging. Yeah, and what's absolutely the case is he he deserved the chance for it to play out and have a fight because that's what he was denied there's always a little bit of a risk of this if you if if you come in earlier but it's just it's just dumb luck sometimes isn't it Nicholas Latifi put it into the wall that's uh Nicholas Latifi making a habit of causing awkward safety cars for people nothing wrong with the racing driver crashing nothing problematic with that but it's just uh, one of those little coincidences that happened to be uh him in the wars well Mark we can now get on to the second part of the race which was that fight between Verstappen and Leclerc so that was the fight for the victory. So how did that play out? From that point on, it did look like Leclerc had it all handled. It was a flat-out duel, a fabulous flat-out duel. Once they were both on the hard tyre and they were both able to push really hard um, for lap after lap, um, it just a, just this fantastic flat-out duel. And Leclerc was always able to just pull out enough to, no matter how hard Verstappen pushed, he couldn't get to that DRS detection point. Leclerc always had it like just enough. He's second and a half, one point six seconds, and so he could, Max could never quite get there and get get the DRS. And it seemed that everything Verstappen threw at him, and he was thrown thrown a lot at him. He was up, up, they were setting and resetting, you know, fast new fastest laps all the time. Um, everything he threw at him, he had an answer for. And they, they slogged it out for over 10 laps like that. It was fantastic. Um, but it did look as though Leclerc had it under control. But then came the VSC um, for the uh, for, a, for the breaking down Alonso and Ricciardo cars. So after that, Red Bull was able to the Red Bull was able to get its worn hard tires back up temperature quicker than the Ferraris, and that finally allowed Max to get within a DRS line repeatedly. And so it was a completely new game now, completely different dynamic. And once that dam had broken down, it couldn't be repaired for Leclerc. You know, the, the, the guy was there, he's in his DRS. So it was then just a game of, um, that <laughs> great game of DRS cat and mouse. It's sort of where we, we left it in Bahrain. We, we sort of took up from there. And... Um, in that in that contest, it, the decisive factor was really the um, the Red Bull's end of straight speed because it was it was set up with a lower downforce wing than the Ferrari, um, and it I think no matter how smartly Leclerc was able to play it, Verstappen had the straight line speed to make the the DRS decisive, um, and that wasn't the case the other way around. It, it, the Ferrari didn't couldn't have. You know, it wasn't inevitable the Ferrari was going to pass if it got DRS on the on the Red Bull because it's it's inherent. It was inherently uh, running a, a higher downforce setup. So yeah, that's just the way it played out. It was um, it, the, the 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 safety car and then the VSC um, both provided very significant punctuations to, to the shape of the race. Yeah, and it made for a absolutely dramatic. Final part of the race as well, really massively spectacular. We should note that VSC thing, a few people have questioned whether Verstappen gained too much under the VSC, but ultimately he didn't. There's always a little bit of ebb and flow depending on how the, the timings were, but there was nothing remotely problematic with that. He was 
just where he was when the, the VSC w- was lifted and they went racing again. Now, Scott, a question from Mark Bildner. He says, once again, we witnessed an exciting back and forth battle between Leclerc and Verstappen for the lead. Is this due to the talent and style of these drivers, the result of two very closely matched cars, or have the 2022 regulations begun to bear fruit? Uh, I think he's picked up on all of the key factors there. I think they all feed into it because um, you need you need to have relatively equal, if not identically, uh, if not identical equipment. You need to have two drivers that are capable of of competing at this level in a hard but fair way, uh, and you also need a, a set of regulations that allow for the cars to follow closely to to have. Uh, the opportunity to to get an advantage down the straight or a challenge into braking zones and stuff like that, and and so it, it's it's not just one thing. Um, for example, we know that Lewis Hamilton is a fantastic driver, and yet he's not in the mix. We know Fernando Alonso is an amazing driver. He wasn't in that Hamilton uh, in in that Verstappen Leclerc fight because it does come down to having all of those ingre- ingredients together. When we get to Monaco, I can't imagine even Leclerc and Verstappen are going to be changing places uh, um, every, every every lap or so. Um, you you need you need all these factors to to combine and just to, to to go through them super quickly. Obviously, I think we should focus on the the twenty twenty two regs because they do seem to be doing a decent job in achieving their objectives. I think. I don't want to get too carried away with what we saw here because Saudi, it's a unique track. You have effectively three consecutive DRS zones very, very close together. They're broken up by one pretty quick sort of S's combination. That's on the back, on the long back part of the track heading down to the final corner and the final corner itself. That's all that separates these three DRS zones. So you can use the first one to get very close you can use the second one to get even closer or launch an attack into the final corner. And then the third DRS zone down the start finish straight towards turn one can either be used to attack or it can be used to retaliate if you've been overtaken. So it does lend itself to a bit of, of give and take, a bit of cat and mouse, the stuff, all, all the stuff that we saw, not just in the lead fight, but elsewhere throughout the field as well. So uh, the circuit played its part. The new the new regs do seem to allow the drivers to follow more closely. That is encouraging. You think you get a big um, gain from that combination of DRS and the, and the slipstream uh, as well, because he's even obviously low drag setups for quite a few teams this weekend. But that's a it's a huge rear wing on the on these new cars. Um, but I I really want to also put emphasis on the the drivers and their their teams. Ferrari and Red Bull have done a fantastic job. They seem to have gone taken very very different approaches and yet produced very very similar cars in terms of performance they even uh, or especially this weekend with the different downforce levels they went for they generated lap time in a very different way and yet they came out with almost identical lap times and then you have the drivers who uh, for the second race in a row second week in a row have put on this amazing display they fight hard but fair uh they just about left each other space there was a little bit of gamesmanship a little bit of Silliness with the fight to avoid being first into the over the DRS uh, detection line, that, but that's just a that's just a consequence of the circuit rather than the two of them playing properly stupid games or doing anything untoward. So yeah, uh, it, it really really fascinating setup. It won't be like that every race. I'm absolutely sure of that. But if this is as I think I said after Bahrain, an indicator of 
what we can expect for F1 2022, these two are going to put on an absolutely awesome scrap all year long. Yeah, do you think this is shaping up to be the title fight, Mark? And do you think Leclerc is up to fighting for this title that we've been hoping for a few years he'll have the chance to have the machinery to to take on a driver like Verstappen? Oh, I think he's capable of um, ha- having that fight and being in that in, in that battle, absolutely. Um, the hope is that we can get a third team in there. Um, it's, it, you, you've got it, it, it's, it's It's very hard from the perspective of now, isn't it, to to imagine that Mercedes might be joining in that fight. Um, but it's such an early stage, such an early evolution, uh, a stage of evolution of these new regulations that it could be something very, you know, switch-like. Um, so I wouldn't count that out just yet. But yes, it, it, if if you had to say what looks the most likely um, picture for the, the the title ahead, it it does it does look very much like um, the Verstappen Leclerc at this stage, doesn't it? Yeah, very much shaping up that way. Scott, Carlos Sainz, he had another weekend where he's looking a bit like Leclerc. Support act, he did set provisional pole on the first runs in Q3, but he was not down to third because he couldn't get performance out of the fresh softs. In the race, he was third, just getting out of the pits ahead of the unfortunate Perez. But again, he just wasn't quite at Leclerc's level, was he? No, he, he, he wasn't. And he admitted it as well. He felt he was a lot closer than he was in Bahrain, which he described as the toughest weekend of his Ferrari career. And that one ended with second place. So um, this, this was a, a, a worse result, but I think he was slightly happy with his with the performance contained within it. Um, I, I, I have a feeling that Carlos would have been a slightly muted and unspectacular fourth in a normal Grand Prix of this. He obviously got... Um, uh, the, 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 the nature of the the first sequence of corners here, like your car positioning into the first part and second part is absolutely key. And Verstappen did quite a, a, a good job, I think, of um, managing that, which just just meant, yeah, I just felt like Carlos was just playing catch-up yet again this weekend on the back foot at the start of the race as well. Needed a bit of uh, good fortune to get into the podium positions. Did a good job thereafter. Didn't make any mistakes or anything like that. But yeah, I don't... I don't feel like he looked like a number two driver this weekend, but he looked very much like the second Ferrari driver. There's obviously a bit of nuance in what I'm trying to say there, but hopefully you understand what I mean. <laughs> number one and a half, let's, uh, uh, let's put it that way. Uh, well, talk of Ferrari, I think, makes it quite a good time to check up on our grid rival team, Scott. The race has its own league on Grid Rival, which is a fantasy motorsport game that's available online. There's an app for it as well. You can take on Scott, me, and many other more capable players. Still available for sign-up, so just because the season has already started doesn't mean you can't join in. Now, distressingly, Scott, you narrowly beat me last week. My lineup was unchanged, so I had Verstappen, Russell, Magnussen, and much less helpfully, Valtteri Bottas and Mick Schumacher. Slightly disappointing 136 points for me, so I suspect you're going to have beaten me again, aren't you? No, you've edged me this week. Um, I've had a, a, a slightly disappointing one as well. I also have Schumacher and Bottas, um, so they didn't help. Kevin Magnussen did me proud yet again. Charles Leclerc did a fine job and I think benefited from Lewis Hamilton's recovery drive through the field, but obviously had a low qualifying performance and ultimately still only finished um in in 10th in so yeah i've dropped i've dropped some points red bull did a lot better for me than um 
than they did in Bahrain. But I've got uh, I've got some choices to make for um, for for the next race. I've got two two empty driver slots to to fill because I only did a couple of uh, two race contracts. I need to work out what I want to do there. Um, I think I've got uh, a, a little idea in in, in mind. Um, so yeah, probably be some uh, some some changes for the next one. Yeah, just Valtteri Bottas to change after the next race for me. But I'm very pleased to have uh, to have shaded you this week. And while we're languishing in mid-table obscurity, well done to RB Sachs 2008, who has Magnussen, Leclerc, Russell, Gasly, Albon and Ferrari and a mighty score over the first two races of 2,239 points to head our league. We'll be following the progress over the year, so download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can join in. You'll find the link in the episode description for this podcast. Well, let's move on now, Mark, to George Russell. He was very fifth in this race, by which I mean the Mercedes was again in the no-man's land between Red Bull and Ferrari up front and then the mid-pack behind, led by Alpine, eliminating this porpoising limitation, not proving to be the work of a moment, is it? Um, no, and uh, they had given up a lot of downforce just to get the car a, a drivable and uh, in a state where it can even finish a race just you know, to keep the... The, the the keep it down to a reasonable level um but it's it's more than just that that the, in terms of it's not like they are able to say if we can just find a way of running the car where it's supposed to be without triggering the porpoising um we will be as quick as ferrari and red bull there's there's no, there's no real way of being certain about that and until they actually do it you know until they actually get the car in that place and have that problem switched off by whatever means they need to do it with changing the tunnel shapes or whatever it's 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 obviously a significant re-engineering job it's not just a case of changing the tire pressures or running slightly different uh ride heights and deriving the downforce somewhere else with bigger wings it, it's it's a, you know a much more involved um fix than that if that's how it's beginning to look and how it's um the the intimations are coming from the team so given that where will that revised car then uh stack up how will it stack up to those two cars the, the ferrari and the red bull which have hit the ground running and will presumably still be um developed as mercedes are struggling to solve their problems so, yeah, they're still uh, in a world of pain at the moment. Um, Lewis tried something a bit uh, left field with the uh, tyre pressures um, for, for qualifying and it, it failed miserably, as you, you will have seen. Um, just no no rear end on the car at all and you know, not what you, what you need in between the walls. So, yeah, so that backfired. Um, yeah, just a pretty... Pretty dire weekend for them, really. Yeah, that was Lewis Hamilton's first Q1 elimination on pace. So meaning as opposed to a mechanical problem or a crash at Silverstone 2009, which is saying something. So yeah, very difficult weekend for him. But Scott, Russell did comprehensively outperform Hamilton this weekend, particularly in qualifying. Obviously, the race pace was uh, was a different story. But Mike Griggs asks about Russell's advantage and... Is this down to George's ability to drive a bad car compared to Hamilton, or is it because his height advantage helps with visibility? Uh, no, it's not the latter. George actually talked. Um, George was asked in Bahrain, I think, about whether or not 
Um, uh, oh, no, sorry. No, it's Esteban Ocon who was asked about it. But anyway, the, the same point applies, which is that just because you're taller doesn't mean you just suddenly sit loads higher in the car because there is um, that invisible line, isn't there, that get, that gets drawn. Driver's head can't go uh, above it. So there is a, a maximum height anyway. So there won't really be any major advantage to be derived there uh, in terms of the visibility. And that's not, as Mark was just explaining, the underlying limitation with the Mercedes isn't how, how well you can see out of it. So um, it's not that. I also don't think it's that... George can drive a bad car better than Lewis can. We, we've seen before Lewis has done decent things with difficult cars in, in the past. Um, it's just been a long time since he's, since he's had to. Um, Lewis had the edge in Bahrain. Um, George did a much better job in, in qualifying. Obviously, whatever Lewis tried backfired, but he's a, but he's a key part of making that decision in the first place. And then Lewis drove a good Grand Prix. Um, it just it just didn't fall the way it needed to for him to really salvage anything proper from where he was starting with the performance of the car. Whereas George just had a very lonely, boring, did the job kind of afternoon. You can't really ask any more of him. But at the same time, it's difficult to know exactly how brilliantly he performed in the race because he was um, he was in no man's land once he edged away from the midfielders in the um, first stint. Yeah, he got past Ocon early on, and then that was pretty much it for him. But Mark, Hamilton recovered to 10th place in the race. It probably could have been a bit better without that VSC period, because he was still motoring along on that starting set of hards and inching away, well, more than inching away from those key cars behind. So there was then the problem that he didn't stop under the safety car. Danny Elliott has a question about that, saying, we heard on the Mercedes team radio that they left it too late to call in Hamilton under the VSC. It's ultimately cost Hamilton a potential few extra places come the end of the race. It does seem harsh that when it comes to crucial pit stops that Mercedes dropped the ball. Is this too harsh? Or have you got any explanation for these errors? So what exactly happened with that pit call for Hamilton? Was there a window for him to get in or were the pits closed for him? No, there was a window there and they had said to come in they had given them the instruction to come in but they added the precautionary um bit on the end of that as um we might change that instruction at the last moment because they might close the pit lane if you remember what happened at monza 2020 they ended up pitting under a closed pit lane and then had to you know get, get a stop stop go penalty for it so yeah it was already quite an ambiguous situation because it, it was saying, come in, but maybe not come in. And just as as that happened, he encounters um, double-waved yellows. Um, and he comes around the corner and, and sees Alonso crawling along, and he doesn't want to overtake. His instinct is not to overtake a double-waved yellows, because that, you, know, you can get a penalty for that. Um, and so he initially follows the Renault and then realizes that the Renault's actually, the, the, the Alpine is, is actually stopping and, and so does go past it. And then just as he gets around the corner and he's, he's, he's not, he's not sure he still hasn't, he, he'd said, okay, can you let me know when they'd instructed him to come in, but said that you might not be coming in but come in but not, you might not be coming in he'd said can you let me know and so as he's approaching now the the pit entry road still a bit uncertain about what's just happened with the the yellow lights there's a stationary car there 
Um, so he's now thinking, oh, the pit lane must be closed, and they haven't said anything. So he keeps going, and then they say, come in. He said, I've, I've gone past the entry now. And then, uh, as he does that unnecessary extra lap, then they do close, close the pit lane. So he's stuck out there for three laps. So, yeah, it, it was very – Lewis – was indecisive and confused in a confusing situation. Um, but he could have got in and the team hired instructor to come in, but it was just a bunch of confusing things all coming at him at the same time. Yeah, it was uh, some, some unfortunate a comedy of errors, you could probably call it. But without that VSC, because like I said, he was pulling away from that group. There were, I think it was obviously Magnussen stopped under the, the VSC, but had been behind Hamilton. Anyway, but Pierre Gasly, Lando Norris were drivers that Hamilton was kind of getting towards having a a pit stop window on. I think he still had a bit of work to do, but the rate he was pulling away, it wouldn't have taken a huge number of more green flag laps for him to have that gap. So maybe with a fair wind, say seventh even might have been possible for for him. I think about seventh. It looked, it looked that way in. Um, without the VSC, he, he was also, it's worth mentioning that on those hard tyres, which he started the race on, um, he was pretty much la- lapping, matching George's lap times. And George was on tyres with 16 laps newer. So it, it wasn't pace that he was lacking this weekend. It was just the, the choice of that he made for the setup and qualifying and the position that, that put him in. He, in terms of his actual underlying pace, um, all through the practices, all through the weekends, he was he had two tenths on George every time they went out. So um, to come back to the the reader's question of you know can he not drive a, a bad car as well? He was actually driving it. He was actually driving it perfectly well. It was just uh, he, he made a, he made some unfortunate choices. Yeah, you put yourself massively on the back foot if you're you're down the grid. He started 15th in the end because Mick Schumacher wasn't there. But yeah, made for a long old afternoon. Well, Scott, let's talk Alpine. Esteban Ocon finished a fine sixth in the race, having qualified fifth. Really, really strong start to the season from Ocon, actually. He was a little bit fortunate because he reckoned had he got out of shape by about one more degree in turn 10-11 on his final Q3 run, he'd have ended up having a Mick Schumacher-style shunt. But... Didn't happen, and the battle between him and teammate Fernando Alonso in the early stages of the race seemed lively, and it was actually potentially counterproductive, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely was. Um, they 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 held each other up, and they let uh, they 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 built a little bit of a cushion um, to the next couple of midfield cars behind uh, Valtteri Bottas and the Alfa Romeo and Kevin Magnussen and Haas, and they 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 should have been running in a in a comfortable, un- not under threat, sixth and seventh. And as it was, their antics brought Bottas into play and Magnussen, then those two fell away a little bit again as Alonso and Ocon stopped fighting and Bottas and Magnussen started fighting. But then they brought them back into it again and actually I think it was um, it was o- it was Ocon, wasn't it, who who dropped behind, uh, who, who, who even dropped, dropped behind Bottas. So... It, it did have a tangible cost at one stage dur- during the Grand Prix. So, look, I I really loved the fight. I thought it was mostly completely clean and fair. There was one thing in particular that I didn't like, which was there was one defence that Ocon did on the run down to, I think it was on down the start-finish straight, where he basically covered 
the inside, but he hadn't. He'd left almost a car width on the left. Alonso went, well, fine, I'm going for it then. Moved right over to the left and then Ocon did a, another like late jink left. It wasn't moving in the braking zone. They were going flat out down the straight, but it was a it was a late movement, which was I, th- I thought was unnecessary. I, I, I don't like those moves. I, I don't like any kind of sudden movements in a straight line. I think, it's, I think it's a step too far. So I think that was the only moment where I thought, okay, that's that's crossed the line. You you can argue that it, it wasn't the most intelligent thing to do. I didn't think it was particularly clever from the team because once it got, once it became clear that whoever got in front was then just going to be attacked by the from the car behind, I feel like then you just got into just a purely counterproductive situation where they were just costing each other lap time constantly. Um, and from the team's point of view, as I say, it was just uh, it was just leaving them vulnerable and potentially compromising. Uh, their Grand Prix. I think the team acknowledged this. I think they realised that actually in the future they are going to let them race. They they recognised that it was it was brilliant entertainment. The drivers did what they were asked to do, which was don't hit each other, don't do any, don't get too silly. And when Esteban was told to hold position, he did. So the drivers didn't do anything wrong. It's just it could have maybe been handled. The drivers didn't do anything wrong. It could have just maybe been handled slightly more efficiently, might be the best way to put it. And by that, I mean probably pick the moments a little bit better, maybe shorten the window where you allow that hammer and tong racing to take place, you know, knock it on the head a lap or two sooner just to buy yourself a bit of margin. And then once you've got a bit of margin again, tell the drivers, okay, you're free to race again. Like it's that kind of thing, and the team have acknowledged that they they said they're going to look into it and make sure that every race they're going to be allowed to to race one another basically, but it will be circumstance driven. So exactly how they manage it will vary race to race. In the end, nothing really dramatic happened, and if Alonso had been able to make the finish, they would have crossed the line one two at the head of that midfield battle or the battle behind Red Bull and uh, and Ferrari and the lead Mercedes. Um, it was very entertaining. It was just yeah. At times, it was just a little bit. What are you doing? Like, I, I'm loving that you're doing this, but as a team, surely you don't want this to be happening. Yeah, Valtteri Bottas was asked about it after the race, and he said he was delighted to see it happening ahead of them, where two teammates are battling and backing themselves in his direction. He was able to take advantage of that. Mark, let's move on to McLaren. Lando Norris picked up seventh place. He was all over Ocon at the end of the race. In fact, he almost got him right at the end. So there are at least some signs of progress at McLaren. Yeah, it uh, was in better shape than um, in Bahrain. And it, it's still a long way from uh, the, the expectations going into the season. But, um, yeah, it's quite encouraging that it, it could do, do a, a wheel-to-wheel with uh, Alpine, which um, ultimately was the best of the rest this weekend behind the, the big three teams. So, yeah, um, they... they and Andreas Seidel was saying after the race that they're still not um, in absolute, in terms of the aerodynamic performance, it's still to an extent compromised by the changes they've had to make um, in Bahrain for the brakes, but that's no longer um, thought to be the, the fundamental problem. The, the, the performance deficit is um, is more than just that. So... Yeah, there's still a lot of work to do, I would say. Um, and it doesn't, it, it, as with Mercedes, it, 
it doesn't look like it's going to be um, uh, just an immediate, a short-term fix. No, I think one of the things that McLaren was stressing the whole weekend was even though they were looking more competitive here, they felt it was sort of track-specific mixed with a slightly better preparation for the car, a um, little bit more understanding of what what to do on, on, on setup, and it, and it did improve it. it was they, they were cautiously optimistic they made a small step forward, but ultimately that car is still no better than probably the seventh or eighth fastest car. In that midfield group, it certainly looks slower than the Alpine, the Alfa Romeo, and the Haas, at the, at the very least. It's probably slower than the Alfa Tori as well. So it's it's not like they've made a sudden jump forward. They just had a slightly more competitive weekend. They did a better job of, uh, of executing it. Circumstances in the race favoured them as well, contributed to this result. It will be a morale-boosting result, certainly. Um but it's not like it's going to make anyone at McLaren believe, yeah, that's it. We've made a proper step forward into the top 10. They, they know that they've still got a, a big mountain to climb. Yeah, on pure pace, they were the eighth fastest car in Bahrain, eighth fastest car in Saudi Arabia. Unsurprisingly, the eighth fastest car on average. Let's move on to Alpha Tauri, Scott. Terrible weekend for Yuki Tsunoda. He couldn't do a flying lap in qualifying because of a water leak and couldn't start the race due to a power unit problem. Not much he could do about that. But Pierre Gasly did finish eighth. I think as he explained to you after the race he really wasn't that comfortable was he no he wasn't i i i felt so sorry for him like it's the f- it's very rare that you're doing a little interview after the race and you just want to say to the guy why are you stood here talking to us get yourself to a doctor man like you should not be speaking go away get your priorities in order at the very least get to the facilities nearby it sounded you, like it well no it was uh it sounded like it sounded like just a, a pure just like pure physical pain it didn't feel like there was anything he could do to relieve it um i said it felt like someone was stabbing him uh in the side he kept kept going on about the, the just just this horrific pain in his intestines that he was screaming in the car that it, it hurt so much and it's almost like he's explaining it and like he's obviously like completely serious it's like he's not didn't feel like he was over exaggerating at all it sounded like genuine agony but the more he's talking about it the more he i think he was realizing just how ludicrous it was sounding and just how bonkers the situation was to be in that much pain and having to drive an F1 car that he started smiling while he was telling the story because he was just like, yeah, this is just like, I've never never been in so much pain driving a driving a car in my life. So absolutely no idea what, what was wrong with him. He, he said he'd been, I think he'd popped into the doctors before coming and speaking to us and he was going back there afterwards. So I hope he... Um, I hope he gets to the bottom of it and it's not anything particularly serious and it's actually just a bit of, you know, localized specific searing discomfort, but discomfort and nothing more than that in a in a in a very isolated way. Um but it did uh, it didn't sound good and yeah, it it, it I, I had no doubt that he was being sincere when he was put when he was explaining it to us, let's put it that way. Yeah, it didn't sound very comfortable. All credit to him for sticking it out and picking up those points. He had a, a decent weekend. Mark, Kevin Magnussen in the points again for Haas in ninth. Perhaps it should have been better as maybe he could have qualified even as high as fifth perhaps. But his weekend was much better than Mick Schumacher had that big impact during qualifying. So what did you make of, of his accident? Um, yeah, it was, as we saw with Ocon, it's, it, it's the sort of accident that... Uh, 
is wait, waiting to happen, really. It, it's uh, that section of um, curb there at ten, turn 10 is, uh, you know, inviting you to make a mistake if you're pushing just a little bit too hard and the consequences are going to be big. So, yeah, it was just a, a guy pushing on, going for a time, pushing very hard and, and just getting at just the wrong side of that line and that, that was it. There's no coming back from it. Um, thankfully, he was um, okay. And uh, thankfully, judging by some of the pictures we've seen, the the, uh, the, the halo, we have to uh, thank the halo once again because the, uh, the, the, the wheels were initially in a, a very troubling place. Yeah, well, he reckons he could have raced if he'd had a car under him. Has said they did have the parts to rebuild the car, but they felt the the risk of, of rushing to rebuild it and then going into the race could have put them in trouble for Australia. Gunter Steiner said pretty much as soon as he saw that accident, he knew it was going to be a, a non-start for Mick Schumacher. But yeah, thankfully, he's okay. But Scott, Oscar Robledo asks, is the race in Saudi Arabia doomed? from a civil safety as well as the dangers that the track itself presents to drivers. He does also give credit to the FIA-driven safety standards that ensured Schumacher wasn't injured. We've already talked about the civil safety side, but the track does still have some problems. And those little tweaks they made to improve sight lines, drivers weren't really very impressed with them, were they? No, they weren't. Um, the safety of this track has been in the spotlight since during the calendar. Um, it's been built to be the fastest street track in Formula 1. It's lined with a number of concrete walls, which impair visibility. Um, it's got... We, how many times this weekend did we joke about how stupid the number of corners on this track are? It's just... As Max Verstappen put it, there's parts of flat-out corners that just might as well be straights, you know? And if you're going to have straights, start make them straight so that you can see better. It, it's just... There are parts of it that are just needless. That's the thing. Um, I'm going to throw a question at you in a second, Ed, to throw back something that you said earlier in the weekend, see if you've reached an answer yet. But you look at Schumacher's accident and I think Daniel Ricciardo put it quite well because Daniel likes having tracks that bite. He wants drivers to be punished for going over the limit, but even he feels that that particular part of the track, that exit curb at the end of the the turn 9, 10 S's, um, it's just too tall. The, it wasn't really a, the same problem last year because the cars were higher rake, but because these cars are stiffer and they run lower, they're ground out on, over the curb too easily and violently and they just spit the car off. We saw two massive accidents this weekend. There were Schumachers, which ruled him out of the Grand Prix, but there was also one for uh, one of the uh, Formula 2 drivers who had to miss the entire Formula 2 weekend because of a crash he had in practice at exactly the same place. So I think... Uh, I don't see why it's a problem to just shave a few mil off the top of that curb or something just to make it, it can still be punishing. It just, it just shouldn't be the sort of thing that you have this absolutely tiny, because it's not like a particularly big error or anything like that. And it just has lud a ludicrous level of, um, of consequence. But earlier in the weekend, Ed, you said you couldn't work out whether this track was, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but fun or just stupid? Are you any closer to uh, coming to a conclusion? Yeah, there's elements of it that are fun, but there are parts of it that are definitely stupid, probably hedging my bets there. There's a few different areas. I think the biggest concern is for in racing, because there's all these blind corners. We didn't see that in, in the race, anyone following 
anyone in if you like into a crash or rear-ending something like we had with Mazepin and, and Russell last year after Perez had his spin but we did see this big Schumacher accident and certainly they need to look at the the safety situation there as you mentioned they do need to think about the impact that the, the different technical regulations have this year but overall yeah there are elements of this track that aren't really on and again I think they've been allowed to get away with a little bit still achieved all the safety standards etc but the safety standards for street circuits are a little bit different uh, than, than they'd be for a for a normal track so I'd like them to continue to look at it they do say they are going to continue to do it in fairness to the organizers they only had three and a half months so they've admitted there were limits to what they could change and there are plans to to change a bit more for next year although that turn 10 11 uh, section wasn't among those but I think that will probably change the drivers generally aren't impressed so it, it's fun in so far as there is that jeopardy and excitement, but you don't want that sort of jeopardy and excitement to that level. You want drivers to be punished for mistakes, not flung into a wall at 33G for a, a relatively small one. So that definitely, definitely needs to be looked at, I would say. So I'm leaning a little bit more towards the, towards, towards the stupid now, although I must admit last year I was a little bit happier with the safety for single car uh, stuff compared to... to race situations let's move on to Joe Guan Yu Mark he couldn't repeat his Bahrain points finish but he did manage 11th place he picked up a five second penalty for leaving the track and gaining an advantage in battle with Albon early on then he got a drive-through penalty for not serving that penalty properly so what exactly happened there yeah a bit of a miscommunication in the alpha pits um he came in and uh, he was supposed to stop for five seconds before they started um on the car, but um, the jackman got straight into it and then seemed to realize his error and dropped the car. And then <laughs> it, it, it was just a bit of a Keystone Cops scenario um, once um, once that had been triggered. So, yeah, uh, pretty disappointing for for him on his second race, but um, he, did, he did okay. He's, but his, his performance level was uh, pretty probably half a second of Valtteri at the moment, I would say. And, um, yeah, I, th I think he's just um, gaining experience. But he, he, he looks, you know, he looks uh, on top of the game and he looks like he's uh, progressing. Yeah, the difficulty he seems to have is for the second race in succession, the anti-stall kicked in going through that first sequence because he's letting the, drop, the revs drop too much. He doesn't think he is, but he's obviously not quite in tune with things. So he needs to look at that because that's happened in both races so far uh, this season, which isn't ideal. And you did also struggle a bit off the start. Uh, Scott, I've got to give you the chance to visit somewhere. We haven't had to dust off yet this year, but it's Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner, which we thought he vacated. He retired with overheating problems while on course for points in 10th place. So are you going to be sympathetic for him this time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, it's nice to be back. It's familiar. It's comfy. Um, I, was, I, I thought that it was... Um, I thought that we might have far too many trips to Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner with the way his pre-season test went, especially at Barcelona. He just seemed to be hit with the lion's share of all of Alfa Romeo's problems. And then obviously he came out with that fantastic um, performance at, in, in Bahrain. Did a great job in qualifying again in Saudi Arabia and said that he this was his best case scenario with all of the information he had available when he made the decision to pick Alfa. This is basically as good as he could have hoped it would get at the at the start anyway. 
And then while he's putting in a very strong drive and well on his way to scoring points, again, gets struck down by this. Very Valtteri Bottas. Um, but I, I'm pleased for him. It's going it's going very well. He's driving very well. And um, he's, uh, he's just fitting into that position and everything that comes with it really nicely. The team leader role, the motivator role, the, the mentor role with Joe. Um, doing Valtteri Bottas things in qualifying where he's doing an absolutely excellent job over, over one lap. But he's not looking bullied or out of place or phased in the midfield. We've seen sometimes Bottas' race craft can sometimes be a bit sketchy. He's been fine the first couple of races. He's, 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 looked, he's looked really strong. It's just, yeah, unfortunately, he lucked out today. Or tonight, rather. Yeah, well, he'll be hoping there won't be too many visits to Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner, but especially given that team loves a, a bit of a random blunder or problem, and they, yeah, they had one on Joe <laughs> with the pit stop, there may be a few more visits this season, but hopefully it's going to be more good than bad. Scott Lance Stroll, he was 13th, Alex Albon 14th after their late collision. Albon got a three-place grid penalty as punishment for causing that clash at turn one. Harsh or fair cop? Fair, yeah. It was, uh, it, it was an honest attempt. Clumsily executed, clattered into 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 Stroll. I was surprised at how much the Williams just seemed to like disintegrate because <laughs> it was it was a big impact. But at the same time, it was like oh, the, the Aston seems to have taken that fairly well, whereas the, the 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 Williams, yeah, the front corner just seemed to absolutely implode. Um, it's a shame. I thought Albon was uh, yet again doing a decent job um, in what is clearly an uncompetitive car at the moment. Um, but he just got a little bit too ambitious there in that situation. Yeah, that blotted his copybook on what has otherwise been quite a decent start to his Williams career. Now, Mark, that did mean Nico Hulkenberg, again standing in for Sebastian Vettel, who hadn't recovered from COVID in time to travel to Saudi Arabia, finished 12th. Do you think we'll see Hulkenberg in F1 again? And do you think Vettel was actually relatively content to miss this one, given everything that happened? Yeah, never say never regarding Hulk. He's, um, he is super sub, isn't he? So... Yeah, in, in in times of COVID, yeah, I think you'd be foolish to to rule him out. We, we, may, we may not have seen the last of him. Seb, yeah, if uh, Seb was going to miss one race, I know he's missed two, but if he, if he had to choose one race to miss, I'm sure it would have been Saudi, just on principle. But, um, yeah, I think he's he hasn't got a lot to look forward to in coming back, has he, in terms of the performance of the car. And, um, yeah, that... Uh, Big upgrade that they're talking about, the mid-season upgrade, can't uh, can't come soon enough. Yeah, it was keen but not desperate to race, was the way Nico Hulkenberg put it. He says he's enjoying it, and he pretty much sort of mentally checked out of F1 after he lost the Renault drive. But then, yeah, he said exactly what you suggested there. COVID happened, and it's given him some chances. So having had these two weekends, that at least means he's current and up to speed. I think only... 22 drivers, 23 drivers have, have driven this generation of F1 cars. So there's not very many. So being in that active pool is uh, is good news for him. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Mark for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the all-important hyphen as there's loads to read there. And also we've got all sorts of videos on our YouTube channel and of course podcasts covering IndyCar, MotoGP, Formula E and of course Bring Back V10s, the retro podcast. We're now heading home after three weeks in the Middle East, but stay with us on the Race F1 podcast for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.